Hey, what's up, everyone? Well, we are going way back in time on the Sons of History podcast. We are going into the Assyrian Empire. Uh, That is many moons ago, wouldn't you say, Dr. Allen? Yes, uh, Dr. Dustin. We're, We're talking about Jonah, Jonah and the whale, you know, the Assyrians. Come on. They were uh they were the badasses of the Mesopotamian region. So uh, they they kicked some ass until you know they eventually got wiped out. So there you go. Yep. And it all well, I wouldn't say it all went down for from there. It went down from for them, uh, for sure. And the rise of other empires. It's uh, it's sort of, you know, our first your first empire um that really gets gets credit i guess you would call um you would say it's the egyptians now let me ask would you say the egyptians were the first empire but it really doesn't count because it's not in the mesopotamian area it's you know you're in uh northern africa well you know the egyptians i i you know i don't i didn't study the egyptians as much as some of the others but I don't re- recall them crossing across the the uh, Sinai and into the, uh, the the Near East or Middle East area. So I don't know if you would want to count that. The Assyrians, on the other hand, the Assyrians they went far and wide. Yeah. Um, as did the Babylonians, and then you know even the Persian Empire went into Egypt. Right. The, the Persian Empire went not only they were in Asia, Africa, and in Europe at one point, and I don't know if uh, before. I, I know that Alexander's his empire stretched all three continents also, but but I think it was. Um, I know the Babylon. I know the Babylonians were in Egypt. At least I think they were. I need to read up a little bit more on them, but yeah, the Assyrian Empire was considered, I believe, the first empire. Yeah. So. Well, well, I mean, obviously, we're going to discuss that with our guest, Mark Healy, um, uh, who has written a book on the Assyrian empires. But before we get to that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you didn't listen to our last episode, this is the last season of the podcast. Alan, you want to say anything? Don't be a loser. Now, now you already, you already, you know, you already opened the, uh, let the cat, you let, you let the cat out of the bag in the last one, so... But yes, this is not the end of the Sons of History. It just means that we're going to be moving into other projects. So Exactly, yeah. Um, but the uh, podcast is coming to an end. or Yeah, it's coming to an end after this season. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, while you dry your eyes, can you do us a favor and subscribe uh, to our YouTube channel or to our podcast, wherever you're listening? No, it's not too late to subscribe. It's not too late to leave a comment. And, I'll, and click the like button. No, it's not too late to leave a nice five-star rating and a glowing review. Never too late. Never surrender. Never say die. Never give up. I can uh, see I can see people giving us one stars right now, <laughs> based on that little rant. <laughs> I, I do want I do want to say that if you do subscribe uh, or like us or follow us. Um, uh, you know, we we have heard from some people who stated that they're not getting any notifications. So I'm gonna I'm gonna state, you know, keep checking our site. 
we have new material coming out. Uh, I, Dustin, I know you've written a lot of material, a lot more than I have, by the way. But uh, Dustin's written some incredible, incredible stories. And if you want to learn various subjects, you know, visit our site on Facebook, visit our site on YouTube, and you'll get more information uh, on things that that for some reason, uh, Facebook and YouTube have just decided we're not going to notify anybody that uh, we have new material. So keep checking our sites. It's been a real uphill battle for sure. Um, but it is what it is, and there's not much you can do about it um, except complain. And Yeah, and complaining, complaining to the people who are doing it is not going to do us any good. And rend your clothes, rend your garments, that's it. Um, you know, this is going to be the first time that we've ever had a discussion on the Assyrians on this show. We have discussed the ancient Greeks numerous times. We've discussed uh, the Romans. Um, I don't know if we've ever gone this far back, um, as far back as the Assyrians. I don't even think we've ever had a conversation on the Egyptians or even the Jews of ancient Israel or anything like that. So I think this is uh, this is as far back as we will have ever gone on the show, which is pretty freaking far back. So, well, you know the uh, the, the 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 various Mesopotamian empires stretch back to, you know, you're talking about like 2500 BC, 2200 BC. Um, you know, the the Code of Hammurabi was written. Tw- uh, oh, you know what? Yeah, twenty about twenty two fifty BC. So yeah, that's that's further back from the birth of Christ than than where we are. Than than forward. Yeah. From from. So uh, yeah. you're talking about if the let's say if the birth of Christ is around you know one AD, which I still think it's four BC, but twenty two fifty BC versus what are we twenty twenty three? So we still got another two hundred years to go before. That time period uh, from Hammurabi to Jesus, Jesus to us. <laughs> yep. That that's Good that's kind of uh, that's weird to think about. You, you're going that far back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, what wild times! Well, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we're going to bring on our guest. His name is Mark Healy. Um, he is his education is in theology, philosophy, and politics. Uh, His first book, Warriors of the Old Testament, was published in 1990. Now, he's written extensively on military subjects of the ancient worlds of Egypt, Assyria, and Rome, all the way up to the modern world, uh, specifically World War II. Now, his specialties on World War II history are on German armor, U-boats, and the Luftwaffe. Uh, And we will be talking... Luftwaffe. Hey, man, I'm not German. Uh, We will be talking with him about his latest book, The Ancient Assyrians, Empire and Army, 883 to 612 BC. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I I can guarantee you that you're going to enjoy this conversation. Uh, I already know it. It's almost like I can remember it. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got Mark on the line. Uh, Mark, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing very well, thank you, Dustin. Well, you're very welcome. It is it is great to have you. I know that uh, you are out in the UK. Um, whereabouts are you? 
Well, I'm to the southwest of London on the south coast in a little uh, town called Wimborne, which is near a place called Bournemouth. I call it a town. I think you'd call it a city. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we are, you never know, because we are on. In, How far is that from uh, South Southampton? Oh, it's about uh, 25, 28 miles. Okay. So you know Southampton, do you? Uh, yes, I've, I've been to that uh, region several times. So I know um, uh, Southampton and then going east to go, I was reading on um, uh, uh, King William the first, and then I guess not too far from you is also Stonehenge. So you're in a... Oh, yeah, it's uh, it's about 30 miles to the to the northeast. Uh-huh. I'm surprised you're using the word miles. I thought uh, you Brits like the word kilometers. <laughs> well, you have to understand, I'm getting on a bit. I'm 70. Uh-huh. So throughout all my life, I've used miles. When we went into the EU, in theory, in, what, 72, we, we changed over to kilometers, but... I think most people in this country still are quite happy with miles. What? That's good to hear. Now, if we can just get you guys to drive on the other side of the road, everything will be uh, better for everybody. <laughs> there are too many other places that uh, have learned to, dri- learned to drive on our side of the road because yeah. they were part of the empire. Well, that, that's, actually, I learned how to drive that way when I was in Barbados. So when I was in Australia... When I was in Australia, it was very easy for me to drive uh, uh, drive throughout the uh, country. So, yeah, Alan has been a little bit of everywhere. Um, as is made known that he is, you know, acquainted with Southampton and Stonehenge, which we're still trying to figure out how those stones got put together. But you know, Alan, I think everybody is. Yeah, my guess is uh, strongman competition went a little haywire. So that's my, that's my guess. All right. Uh, Mark, it's going to be a fun, fun and fabulous conversation. I can already tell because it's the Assyrians and we have actually never had a conversation on this program about the Assyrians. Uh, we are nearing our 200th episode and it's never happened. So congratulations to you. Uh, for bringing us on board uh, with the ancient Assyrians. Now, uh, my first question, I sort of want to tie two questions together uh, about the information that we have on the, uh, on the Assyrians that come from archaeology. What are some of the major artifacts, like the reliefs and cuneiforms, that have informed us about the Assyrians? And I believe that you wrote your first book about 30 years ago, um, what has been discovered about the Assyrians since then? Well, certainly a lot has been discovered about the Assyrians since then, which uh, which is what prompted me to approach Osprey to write a, another and bigger book. Uh, my interest in the Assyrians has always been primarily from the military point of view. Um, I've written quite a few books on uh, military history, both ancient and modern. Um my academic background is theology and philosophy, and it was in the course of doing um, Old Testament studies for my first degree that I came across the Assyrians and the bug bit, and I've taken an interest in them ever since. Uh, I, I think we're rather lucky in 
the amount of information that's come down to us through cuneiform tablets, which you've mentioned. Of course, all the other information that went down on uh, pieces of leather and papyrus, well, they have uh, disintegrated over time. So it's only on the cuneiform texts um, that we, we have information. But thank goodness, uh, the Assyrian kings were very vociferous in describing their military campaigns uh, and a whole host of other aspects of Assyrian life. There's another book out at the moment um, by, by the head of um, Assyriology, I think, at Chicago University, Eckhart Fromm, which actually looks at Assyria in the wider context than I have done, because my focus was essentially on the empire and the military. So the culture, um, for which there was no space in my writing, uh, can be looked at there. So employing the two books alongside each other would give people who don't know much about the Assyrians, I think, a very, very good um, basic primer on the Assyrian Empire. And when it comes to since your since your book, has there been any great discoveries uh, on the Assyrians in the past thirty years? Well, I think I think uh, it's it's new information that has arisen in consequence of uh, academics um, translating the cuneiform and expanding on the information that's already known. Uh, it is really quite surprising just how much is known. Um, but of course, the Assyrians aren't a topic most people are familiar with. That they were responsible for creating probably the world's first empire, in the sense in which we understand that term, seems to have sort of um, bypassed people. I think also uh, it is unfortunate that, and again, I think this is probably because of the Bible and the influence of uh, of, of, of Western culture, the Assyrians have always been seen in a very pejorative light. Um, they, ha they they have a reputation for barbarity, which is deserved in, in cases, but they're not alone in be being barbarous. Um, so it may well be that in consequence of the information that's now coming out and the books that are coming out, people will, will actually bother to acquire a deeper understanding of these people and this culture. Uh, they were quite remarkable. You know, I got to tell you that I, I've always viewed the Assyrians as badasses. I first learned about them, um, the story of Jonah, for instance. Uh, he had to go to Nineveh and tell the, uh, uh, the, the people living there that they'd better, you know, shape up or, or they're dead. And uh, I know Jonah didn't. Jonah was like wanting them to get uh, wiped out. I know, I know that. And... Uh, and I, and I myself, I read a little bit about the Assyrians. And, you know, and then what really got me to be like, all right, I want to find out who these Assyrians were. Um, I'm assuming you've seen the Monty Python movie, The uh, Quest for the Holy Grail. Have you seen that one? Yes, you remember that uh, the first guy? Okay, that first guy, uh, I, don't, I don't remember which, uh, which one he was, Sir, Sir Robin or someone. The third question was, what? is the capital of Nineveh or capital of Assyria. And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I knew that one. I knew that one. So um, I read up on it. It depends when, even in the Neo-Syrian Empire, um, yeah. the capital went from Ashur, then it went to 
uh, Kalhu or Nimrud, and then it went to Khorsabad, and then it went to Nineveh, Nineveh being the final capital under Ashurbanipal. Okay, see, Nineveh would have been the one I would have answered. So, so maybe maybe I would have survived and uh, was able to cross the bridge. So, so the question I have is is that <clears throat> um, in your reference uh, in, in your book you do reference the ancient uh, scriptures of the Old Testament. So, um, how accurate is the Old Testament when it comes to the history of the Assyrians? From my point of view, we have to depart from the premise that when you look at books in the Old Testament, which are called history books, they're not history in the way that we understand it. Um, they, are th- they are the use of history for theological reasons. Um, it is the theology that underpins what is being written about that uh, accounts for how the history is being employed. So um, I tend, we have a problem here because I think certainly in America, from what I understand um, and what I know, because uh, I've only been to America once. I went in 2010 and uh, I stayed with my former philosophy tutor, who was then a professor of uh, theology at the Southwestern Methodist University in Dallas. And he was a leading light in the Methodist tradition over there. And I do know that for the nonconformist tradition in America, it is still understood that the Bible is meant to be taken fairly literally. Uh, am I right? You're right. Yeah, which leads us into all sorts of problems because um, I don't believe the Bible is the literal word of God. Um, to go to the Bible and look for history is really to not use the Bible properly. Um the people who wrote the books that we see in the Old Testament, which have it has information in there about the Assyrians, the Assyrians are being used for theological purposes. Um, uh, for example, you know, Yahweh says, you know, Assyria, the rod of mine anger. It's fitting into um, Jewish uh, covenant theology. Uh, it, it isn't history, which is why when I did the treatment of um, Sennacherib's invasion of Judah in 701 BC, you don't get an account that tends to read much like what one finds in the Bible. Um, whereas the, uh, the the Old Testament books treat Sennacherib's, uh, pardon me, his invasion and subsequent defeat, I have grave doubts it was a defeat. Certainly the Assyrian texts which describe the campaign in Judah, uh, they they give no suggestion whatsoever that it's a defeat. And uh, some of the claims in the Bible as to how many Assyrians that the the angel of the Lord destroyed in one night, uh, which then accounts for why the siege of Jerusalem was raised and the Assyrians went retreated back to Nineveh with their tail between their legs, just isn't credible. I come back to the point I've already made. I, I, I think it is simply wrong to treat the Old Testament books, which are theological, as history as we understand it. I, I'm going to have to disagree with uh, my co-host. I I do see the New Testament, um, with the exception of maybe Revelations, that uh, you have to take it literally. But I never, I myself never took the Old Testament as being literal, for a variety of reasons. Um, 
but you know that that's going to be a different story. Um, I did, however, when I read about say the angel of the Lord wiping out, I don't know. I thought I read something like a hundred thousand Assyrians. Um, for me, I I looked at it as hmm? went up as high as about one hundred eighty thousand overnight. Uh, something like that, yeah. And so I I just looked at that. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, in, if one is ex- assuming it's a factual account, it's it's frankly incredible and not possible. Um, I hoped I point that out in my book. I mean, the Assyrian army was fighting uh, fully fledged in Babylonia the following year. And although the Assyrians had probably band power larger than most other powers in the ancient Near East at the time, they couldn't have lost 183,000 soldiers overnight and then survived as an empire. So I think one has to, again, one has to see those sorts of accounts as ways of strengthening the theological view of the power of the Lord in terms of his mighty actions. You shouldn't look at it as if it's literal history. If people do, then they have problems, I think. Well, for me, for me, I look at I looked at it as that maybe there was some sort of a pestilence or some some disease uh, that ravaged their camp and and uh, you know, killed. But why would you need several... to think that? Why? Well, it, you know, if you read, if you read some of the books from the from the that period, if a volcano destroyed a, an entire area, it was because uh, Hephaestus was was mad at the people, or if uh, lightning, you know, a storm. Well, it's because God was mad at was God was mad at them. So. The, you know, they had they didn't have the science that we have today, where you have satellites and you can see things. So, anytime something bad happened, they blamed it on something supernatural. They blamed it on on God. You know, God was angry at you. God was this. God was that. Which I I don't I don't think God's going to waste his time and sit and wipe out somebody simply because uh, you ate some kind of a meat that uh, you weren't supposed to on a Friday. So that's. That's why. But uh, even reading some of the Greek sources, uh, the, you know, the Greeks themselves, when something when something bad happened, it was because, you know, Hera was mad or Zeus was mad. So that that's why I came to that conclusion. You know, I, I mean, even in the beginning, the beginning of, of uh, the Iliad, in the beginning of the Iliad, there was uh, uh, Apollo was wiping out much of Agamemnon's army. So right there. Right there, you have an instance where you know Apollo is pissed off and he's he's killing much of the Greek army. So when I read when I read that in the Old Testament, that was my 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 same thought that instead of it being Apollo, it was uh, Jehovah. So, but you have a problem because um, in the Assyrian texts, you don't have a siege of Jerusalem. You have a siege of Lachish, but you do not have a siege of Jerusalem. The, uh, the Akkadian terms that are used to describe what the Assyrians did around Jerusalem is that they blockaded it. They didn't lay siege to it. And given that uh, the Assyrians knew full well that the, the, the wall defences of Jerusalem were pretty formidable because they were made of stone, thick stone. I mean, the walls of Lachish were 15, Lachish were 15 foot thick. Now, When the Assyrians had laid siege to capitals of other polities that they had attacked, 
Um, in some cases, they were laying siege to some of these places for up to three years. Jerusalem would not have fallen in the time that the Assyrians were fighting in Judah, which was one campaign season. That is from the time, the, uh, the ending of the, uh, the harvest to towards perhaps the end of October. Um, that's why Lachish was laid siege to. It was a symbolic uh, destruction of a city of the Ju of the Judeans. Jerusalem wasn't attacked in the sense of it was laid siege to with a view to taking the city. That you have this account, that you have this account in the Bible that suggests it was, has to do with the way the Bible was written. It's not history. I mean, I go so far as to say, uh, people seem to want to bend over backwards to try and account for why the Assyrians did this and did that according to what the Bible says. But here is a here is something that maybe might shock some of your listeners who perhaps do view the Bible in the particular way we're talking about. That quite simply, there was no siege of Jerusalem. Quite simply, there was no destruction of Assyrian soldiers of the sort that's described in, 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 in the in the texts, the scriptures themselves. We have a very different view which reflects Jewish theology, not history. As history being what actually happened. No, I, I, well, I mean, I was so. In your opinion, did uh, did the story of Jonah was that a true story or? Uh... Jonah is not meant to be taken literally as literal truth. It's okay. more. Uh, it's it, it forms. It falls into a into a section of Jewish uh, uh, religious writings, which has to do with prediction, whatever. Nineveh, Nineveh didn't fall because of Jonah. Nineveh right. fell because of uh, because of the uh, the Babylonians and the Medes in six twelve. Um, I'm afraid, gentlemen. I'm I'm far more skeptical, perhaps, than maybe I'm hearing you suggest you are about the biblical texts. Oh, it's it's no problem. We're I mean, I just. When I look at now the the Old Testament, I see it as sort of how you are how you are referencing it um, from a theological sort of propagandish uh, perspective. Um, that is a light hold on history, um, but is very in favor. And you sort of make this point in your book very in favor of one side, which would be the Jewish side. Um, Which, of course, it is. It would be because and, that's and what they were writing for. And that's and to your point with with that, also the the Assyrians and I think most empires, at least, you know, for a vast long period of time, um, nobody really wrote about their defeats. Uh, nobody really wrote about their embarrassments. And a lot of people weren't even allowed to write about their embarrassments. So you have a little bit of propaganda from every angle, I would say. Oh, yes. I think, um, without doubt, the cuneiform writings of the various kings in which they describe their campaigns, which actually forms the substance of what uh, 
uh, is to be found in, on most of the main cuneiform texts that they produced, um, were about victories. But uh, it is also generally accepted that uh, they were pretty victorious most of the time. They did suffer defeats. I mean, the Romans suffered defeats. The Romans suffered terrible defeats. And uh, I think, what was it President Kennedy? Uh, I can't remember exactly, you know, everybody claims victory, but defeat is a, is an orphan child. You know? So, yes, the, Assyri the Assyrians were defeated on occasions, but on the whole, they tended to be victorious. Yeah. And that was because yeah. they they were a militarist state and they had a very efficient army yeah yeah they they i mean i i've I saw i've seen the maps of what uh what the assyrians uh how big their their empire was i was quite uh quite impressed uh you know the funny thing is is that it seemed like it was always a back and forth you had um you know you had the babylonians you had the assyrians and um they were in some regions from what is today iran where they were going back and forth, back and forth, great empires, until you said uh, 612, where several armies kind of gathered together and finally wiped out Assyria. Um, I, wa I want to mention some of the leaders of, uh, of Assyria. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with the, as Sargon II. Um, can you... Um, Give us, give our listeners a, a brief rundown of some of the great kings of uh, of Assyria and some that were not, and what was so great about them and some of their achievements. Well, I think um, the use of the term "great" is in this context has to do with the idea that there were certain kings that were far more instrumental than others in expanding the borders of of, of Assyria. Um, you you mentioned Sargon, but uh, a predecessor, but one to him, Tiglath-Pileser III, is generally accepted as probably being the greatest of all the Assyrian kings and one of the seminal figures of the ancient world, of the ancient Near East. And it was he who established um, the formal basis of the Assyrian Empire by translating many territories that the Assyrians had, had defeated and conquered from just being tribute-bearing states to becoming provinces. So under Tiglath-Pileser, you see uh, the emergence of a whole series of provinces um, across Syria, down through the Levant, uh, into, the, into, what, uh, into the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Um, not all of Israel was conquered by Tiglath-Pileser. He certainly conquered the area of the Galilee, but um, his son didn't live for very long. And it is thought that his son, uh, Shalmaneser was the was a gentleman who first brought about the surrender of the northern capital of uh, Samaria. Sargon II was a usurper, we think. Um, not maybe part of the, the the main royal family, but he was a very very effective um, soldier and was engaged on warfare for, for most of his life. And um, he and Tiglath-Pileser are responsible probably for the greatest territorial acquisitions that formed the Assyrian Empire. Um, Sargon's son was Sennacherib, who um, we, we, we 
we come across in Byron's poem, we come across in the Old Testament with the siege, supposed siege of Jerusalem. After Sennacherib, you had Esarhaddon, who conquered Egypt. And after Esarhaddon, you have the one that probably most people know, Ashurbanipal, primarily because it was from his palace in Nineveh that um, an, an English gentleman, uh, <laughs> slipped, slipped my mind his name, um, Austin Lyard, uh, who excavated Nineveh, part of Nineveh, the, court, the, the great palace that Sennacherib built. And he brought back lots and lots of wool reliefs from um, northern Iraq to London. And these are now seen in the British Museum. And it's the wool reliefs that depict the siege of Lachish that he, that he brought back. Uh, we don't know exactly when Ashurbanipal died, but following um, his uh, demise, you clearly get a period which sees the decline of the empire itself and finally its collapse. So how often... Oh yeah, yeah, no, he's he's fine. Um, yeah, I was, often... I, was, I was trying to find... Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I read a book about a month or two ago about the whole Mesopotamian area. And I was, try I was trying to find it. I can't even find it in all my books, but I wanted, um, I wanted to ask you, and, and that'll be in one of my later questions, I wanted to ask you about some of the other campaigns that took place. Because when, when, I, when I talk to you in a second, I want to ask you about, I have this book here, the code of, uh, is it Hammurabi? Yes. Yeah, Hammurabi. So. So he predates the yes, predates by he about, predates uh, the Neo Syrian Empire by about six, six seven hundred years. Yeah, yeah but yes. Yeah. So, so when when, when, when I get when, when we, we get, get to the my next question, question, I'm going to ask you a couple, ask you a couple things, things about, about that. that. All right. So uh, it is now my question. <laughs> so re regarding these uh, the kings, how often were they out on military campaigns, and how did those campaigns contribute to the Assyrian economy? Good question. Um, the most important kings were out on campaign almost annually. Uh, there were occasions when you had some kings who weren't so proficient in warfare who weren't. But in as much as Assyria became a mighty and a very wealthy empire, it was on the basis of war. Um, it just so happens that Assyria was underpinned by religious ideology that supposedly their god, Ashur, Assyria being the empire of Ashur, um, that Ashur gave to the king of Assyria on his coronation the power to conquer all other lands. Not necessarily for the propagation of a, you know, the Assyrian religion, because that didn't happen. The evidence is the Assyrians did not propagate their religion. So the reason why Assyria expanded its borders um, in the Neo-Assyrian period was to acquire territories that could yield tribute, that flowed to the center and made um, Assyria itself extremely rich. Um, and that really, quite simply, is probably the basis for Assyrian imperialism. 
no matter how it was dressed up. It wasn't dressed up in ideological terms or religious terms, um, apart from the fact that Ashur empowered the king to spread the borders of Assyria. So it was, I think, an empire founded solely on conquest, and it became immensely rich on the basis of the wealth and tribute that flowed into, into Assyria from the, from the areas it, it conquered. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Uh, and it's interesting that you answer it with uh, Asher and, and, the, and the divine. Uh, well, I want to get into that. So your book discusses how the kings were divinely chosen to lead the Assyrians. How did the Assyrians view their kings? Uh, did they view them as, as deities or did they simply view them as a king by divine selection. And also, while I was reading your book, you have a lot of, uh, there are a lot of moments in time where, say, after a victorious battle, uh, the king will give praise and, and glory to Asher or, or a certain god. Um, were they actually religiously devout or were there writings about thanking God for the for the victory simply post-war propaganda? No, I don't think uh, that's that's a you know a rationalization from our our perspective. I think there is no way you can separate war in the ancient Near East, be it Assyrian, Babylonian, Hittite, Egyptian. You're going back some way now, obviously with Hittites and Egyptians before the Assyrians. All war was sanctioned by the gods. War was a, war was a religious activity. Um, so the notion that there was some sort of um, secular underpinning, which which had on grafted onto it some sort of religious ideology, I suggest, no, I don't think so. I think all the Assyrian kings accepted and believed that um, they were empowered to do what they did by by the gods, by the, and particularly the goddess Shur. Now, you ask about how, how did you become a king? Well, you on the whole became a king because you were the son of the king on the throne. But there wasn't primogeniture, that is, that the oldest son inherited. It was up to the king to designate. And uh, whoever became chosen then, had, then was reinforced by the religious underpinning that he'd also been selected by Ashur to... Um, to take his place as the crown prince. For example, um, Sennacherib originally chose his eldest son to be his heir designate, then changed his mind and selected his youngest son, Esarhaddon. So when Sennacherib was murdered in 681 by some of his sons, um, you had the makings of a civil war. So that did happen. But um, Esser hadn't managed to get back to um, Nineveh before the um, conspirators were able to place themselves and their regime on the throne and in, in the state before he got there. Um, Tiglath-Pileser III, who I've mentioned already, became uh, king of Assyria in 745. He is thought to have been a usurper. Um, it's still the case that 
seriologists now try and work out where did he come from? Was he the son? Was he a son and an older son in the royal family? Where did he come from? But clearly he was a known quantity and the then king who was deemed to be too weak seems to have been assassinated and Tigleth Pilesa, who originally had the nickname Pull, was put on the throne and then almost immediately started uh, going to war and proving himself to be a very, 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 very successful general. So Assyria had problems with um, usurpers. Assyria had problems with uh, revolts. Um, there was one, one, one Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III, who in his dotage, in his old age, almost the whole country rose against him and his heir designate, and that heir designate had to fight to secure the throne. So Assyria had its fair share of problems. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't unlike any other city-states, even though, you know, they invoked the gods as being the justification for this, that, and the other. I'm trying not to get too complex. Hey, it's a complex thing. It's a, it's it empire. is, no, no doubt. doubt. But all, all empires were sanctioned by religion. Hmm. I mean, in that sense, you know, the, the, the Hebrews slash Jews were no different. Yeah. They went to war when, when Yahweh said so. The Babylonians went to war when their God said so. The Medes, the same. Everybody did. Not only was war endemic at this time, and this is something which, if you don't mind, can I jump in here? Much is made of Assyrian accounts of the description of what we would nowadays call atrocities. Um, I think what happened some three weeks ago with, uh, and I'm not being political here, I'm just stating the facts as a, I, I'm stating the information that I have heard on the television and read it in the newspapers about the sorts of things that some of the Hamas uh, people did when they attacked the kibbutzim in southern Israel. I mean, it was fairly barbaric, but it was barbaric along the lines of what uh, I, um, ISIS carried out. Um, the sort of barbarism we, dis we the, the Assyrians describe was not unique to them. We know that there were cases of that sort carried out by the by the Egyptians when they had their empire. And I think it's worth saying this, if you don't mind me, me doing so. Um, these accounts in cuneiform, um, which in some cases attended the wall reliefs, which show, for example, flayings and decapitations, were on the walls of the royal palaces. Now, the only people that would get to see these images were Assyrian, Assyrians themselves, high-ranking Assyrians, and people who came to court to see the Assyrian king, to be told what to do, officials from other territories within the empire. And although the wall reliefs were pretty graphic and they were painted at the time, much in the way the Romans painted their statues, the Assyrians painted their wall reliefs. So there would have been lots of blood, etc., lots of decapitated heads. It was, it was there on the walls to point out to them, this is what will happen to you 
if you do not do what you say, which is to obey the treaties that you have signed with us. So did Syrians engage in this sort of barbarity willy-nilly? No. Was it done to make a was it done to make a point? Yes. I mean, you have this expression. Uh, Sargon talks about pouring out terror. Terror is a deliberate policy. But you've had that in the 20th century. I forgot the German word for the policy that the German army used very early on in the First World War. Deliberate instilling of terror to deter those that you have captured or conquered from doing things against you. So I think we have to be a little, I think personally, a little bit critical and about exactly how this was done. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I think it was interesting that sometimes they would choose to completely destroy a city and sometimes preserve a city. And at times it was for the same offense, which I found somewhat interesting that they you know, it, but like you said, it wasn't just willy nilly. They actually thought about these things for short term and long term purposes. Well, <clears throat> and also, I think, and also, I think you did have the person personalities of the kings involved. Not all kings reacted the same way. Ashurnasirpal uh, the second uh, is thought to have been a bit, a bit of a sadistic individual who actually decided to. Eliminate cities just for the sake of it. Why not? I don't mean why not in the sense of why not do it, but we have to understand that the Assyrians were as much humans as anybody else, and you had the sheer variety of human types that you had then as you do now. You mentioned something about the uh, flaying. Now, um, my my mom's side of the family, uh, they're Phoenician, and my, my father's side, uh, they're Aramaic. So, and I don't know if it was the Assyrians, but I remember reading somewhere that there was a uh, Phoenician king, I don't know if he was from Sidon or Tyre, who uh, rebelled against one of the kings of Mesopotamia. And there's a a picture of him or a a symbol of him being uh, flayed. So when you mentioned that, I recalled recalled reading about that. And I think I saw the picture of it. It was up on the reliefs. now, and this is why I was looking for that other book, because uh, I'm going to have to go by memory. So forgive me if I use the wrong words, but I, I remember there were all these various empires that arose in Mesopotamia. I, I want to say there was Ur, there was Uruk, the Elamites, you had the Babylonians, you had the Medes, you had the Hittites. I don't know when the Parthians showed up. Um, I know there was a Parthian empire later on. And this, and I know Cyrus. Okay, because I know Cyrus. He came about in the sixth century BC. So I know this was prior. That that was after Nineveh was to, or Assyria was destroyed. Yeah, so you had you had the you had the Assyrian Empire collapses in six twelve BC. Uh-huh. Uh, the Babylonians then inherit in, in effect the Assyrian Empire for the next hundred years. Five three nine, Cyrus takes Babylon. And you had the, the beginnings of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Say that again. Achaemenid. <laughs> I, I always okay. 
I heard you say Achamenid. That's why I was like, hey, that that's uh, me because I can speak Arabic, and so that that is a pronunciation that I don't hear too many people saying. Um, so well, my, my here's my question: When these various empires destroyed other empires, or uh, the the various empires that surrounded them, or the cities that just surrounded them, I do recall like Babylon was once completely destroyed but and but there was a uh, a symbol of a religious symbol that was taken out and then the people would freak out saying no 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 you're going to incur the wrath of the gods so but and and it was eventually given back so there was constant warfare i know babylon was a constant thorn in the side of assyria you may, and you just mentioned about raising cities just for the sake of it. So would it have been best for the Assyrians in the long run to just completely raise, say, Babylon or any other city to the ground and and then just migrate some of their people to kind of take it over? I mean, what, how, how is it that all these different empires kept coming back, kept coming back? You know, it was a back and forth throughout the history of Mesopotamia until, I mean, even after... You know, uh, Alexander went through there, and and then you still had. What was the thinking, knowing full well that sooner or later these folks are going to come back and get us? Maybe it might not be in a hundred years; it might be in five hundred years. Why not just completely genocide and and take it over and migrate your people there? What what was? What's your thinking on that whole subject? It's a pretty big subject. Um... Specific- let's let's take let's take ba- let's take Babylon for instance. If, let's right, I was going to say different. let's take Babylon. Okay. Um, the Assyrians had an ambivalent attitude to Babylon. Um, the distance between Nineveh and uh, Babylon was, I think, about four hundred miles. Uh, so, for us, it's the distance from the south coast of England to more or less um, the borders of Scotland. Not a great distance, not a great distance. They spoke basically the same language, Akkadian. Um, they shared many of the same gods. Babylon was older. And the thing is Babylon had a prestige um, that was recognized throughout the ancient Near East as one of the great centers of civilization and of religion which tended to be one of the same thing. It also had a god, Marduk, that was venerated by many, many other peoples outside of of Babylon. Now, Assyria um, came along, well, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which roughly covers the period the 9th to the 7th century BCE. It comes along later than certainly does Babylon. And um, the Assyrians venerated Babylon as well as a religious center. But when Assyria started expanding its borders, particularly under Tiglath-Pileser III, that's in what, the 8th century, he was the first Assyrian monarch to go into Babylonia and uh, try and take it over, which he did. He, in fact, became king of Babylon before he died. The attraction of Babylon for him was that Babylon was the nexus at a very large number 
of international trade routes. You had boats coming in from India, from the Indus Valley into uh, uh, up the uh, Tigris Euphrates and actually um, docking at Babylon. You had uh, trade routes coming in from Afghanistan, bringing things like lapis lazuli, gold, uh, lead. You also had trade routes from southern Iran. You had trade routes coming out of Arabia. You had trade routes coming across from Egypt and uh, the Levant. So Assyrian kings from Tiglath-Pileser III always had their eye on the main chance of increasing the wealth of Assyria through taxation and control of trade routes. There's always an underlying economic motive. In that sense, Marx was always right. It's economics that tend to determine how things evolve. Now, the Babylonians did not take... <clears throat> the Babylonians were themselves ambivalent about the Assyrians. They saw the Assyrians as being helpful when they could, when the Babylonians could see that they were useful against tribes to the south of Babylon in the uh, the great marsh areas. You had the, um, oh God, I've forgotten the names. You had two very large tribal groups um, who had settled in Babylonia and who, particularly those in the south, stuck their nose in Babylonian politics and business. And the Babylonians, being older, didn't like these Johnny-come-lately sticking their noses in. And they were quite happy, say, under Tiglath-Pileser III, to have the Assyrians come in, sort out these tribal groups, and um, permit Tiglath-Pileser to become king of Babylon. But it didn't last. They got sick. They, 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 they wanted their independence. They didn't feel they wanted to be ruled by, um, in effect, people who were related to them in the north. The Babylonians were always very independent. And you got the outbreaks of uh, wars between Assyria and the Babylonians. And because Babylon had become such a prestigious city and Babylonia was so important, the Assyrians were not prepared to sit back and see the Babylonians um, acquire their independence. Not only that, the Babylonians had got to the, the Assyrians had got to the point where they could simply not allow anyone who was included within their empire who's linked to them by treaty, to go their own way and then see the rest of their empire not try and do the same. I think what is remarkable about the Assyrian Empire, and this must have come across, you know, when you're reading my book, how many times the Assyrians found themselves refighting the same people? You mentioned this. Um, no matter how horrific some of the, some of the, um, some of the, uh, barbarities inflicted on people who broke their agreements with Assyria, they still came back to try and regain their independence. So the Assyrians went back in again and sorted them out again. 
but it still wasn't enough. So the history of the Assyrian Empire seems to be victories, followed by a degree of retrenchment, in which the natives then decide to uh, raise the flag of revolt and try and gain their independence. One of the reasons why Tiglath-Pileser decided to translate tributary states into provinces, which would have had Assyrian troops permanently based in there to stop any uprisings of the sort that happened before the provincial system was introduced. I mean, what I wasn't able to put into the book, which I would have liked to have done, because, you know, you get limited by the number of maps the publishers allowed, prepared to allow you to use. It would have been a map of the ancient Near East when it was part of the Assyrian Empire, showing all the provinces. And the number of provinces that the Assyrians had by, say, the middle of the seventh century was very, very, very extensive. And um, there were Assyrian troops based in all these places. And uh, they were there to scotch any attempt by the, by, the, by the natives to rise up in revolt. And they tended by that time to succeed. But Babylonia, Babylonia was always a problem for the Assyrians. You know the expression Spain in, the, in Napoleon's empire, the Spanish boil, the Spanish abscess. You heard that expression? Right. You heard it? Yeah. Because he could never get Spain under control and he had to send loads of troops down there. Same problem with Babylonia. Mm -hmm. Babylonia was a serious ulcer, its boil. And perhaps all the campaigns that they fought in Babylonia, right through to the end of the empire, uh, contributed in no small measure to its eventual decline of the manpower losses yeah extensive manpower losses yeah and it's interesting you know you've got that i mean three thousand years later with the napoleonic wars it's the same exact thing uh with spain uh the moment you you think you might be getting some control well now you want to expand or at least not expand but go into russia and you pull out you know, tens of thousands of troops, and then you ultimately lose Spain, and then it doesn't help that Wellington is is uh, creeping in as well. Uh, so, yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't change. Like, the warfare, you know, the methods of the warfare cha- changes as far as, like, artillery, but uh, the tactic, the tactics, the strategies, yes, uh, yes, it's all the yes. same. Yeah. But uh, doesn't, it, doesn't it seem to make one point? Don't bother trying to create an empire because you'll lose it. You can't control. You can't own the world. That's right. No. Or I mean, we came fairly close. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sun never set. Yeah. But we had to dump it pretty quickly after the Second World War. Yeah. You just couldn't afford to keep it. Ultimately, it becomes untenable. Um, That's right. It actually leads to my my last question. Our last question is pretty simple. And you sort of touched on it. But I know in your book, it sort of leaves a question of how the hell did this happen, which is how did the Assyrian Empire come to an end? Well, that's always been one of the great mysteries of history, because uh, it goes from a point in, say, 650 BC, where it dominates most of the ancient Near East. And then in 612, it's gone. 
and nobody sheds a tear for its going. Now, the latest possible explanation, and I think in the light of other things that uh, I brought up in my book, I mean, at the beginning, I talk about the great, um, uh, the famines brought about by the failure of the rains to fall. And you get that again in a much, much bigger way, it would seem, um, towards the end of the Assyrian Empire, uh, over a period of about 30 years, you have the beginnings of quite extensive desiccation. Now, all these economies in that part of the world were based upon agriculture. One of the reasons why the Assyrian Empire was able to expand and to take its armies abroad so much was that it could, it harvested every year, certainly in the two centuries, the eighth, uh, the ninth to the eighth centuries BC, very, very large harvests. And uh, like the Romans, Assyrian soldiers took campaign flour with them. And um, every year the Assyrian kings would, would ask when the, when the harvest was brought in, to what extent is it a good harvest? Because that, a good harvest, guaranteed the ability of the Syrian army to go on campaign. Now, what you've got, it would seem, from about 650 onwards, you get the beginnings of extensive uh, desiccation in the climate. The rains don't fall. The crops don't grow. So you get a repetition of the terrible conditions that existed in northern Iraq in uh, the, the 10th century B.C., what is interesting is that you've got similar conditions at the moment going on in Iraq. Uh, the river, river Euphrates has almost totally dried up. And that seems to be because of climatic problems in the northeast of the Mediterranean that flows across. It was a team from one of the universities in California who did extensive work on this, on the on caves in northern Iraq, who were able to identify these very extensive periods of uh, climatic change, which led to uh, a ceasing of the rain falling, therefore a ceasing of the grains growing. So harvests weren't brought in, and you could not support an army without the harvests. The other side of the coin is if people started dying off because of famine, Many, many of the original Assyrian soldiers were, were farmers and farm laborers to begin with. Then once the harvest was brought in, bang, in the army. So the agricultural workers were to begin with also the soldiers. So I think you've got you've got a you've got a compound of fact of factors. Um, I think I think undoubtedly. There is evidence of a decline in the population of Assyria such that the armies were no longer able to raise the number, the, the, the manpower they needed. That was compounded by the problems brought about by famine, um, desiccation of the climate, which caused the famine, and also because the Babylonians reasserted themselves. The first king of the new Babylonian dynasty was not actually a Babylonian. Nabopolassar was from one of the tribes to the south of Babylonia. His son became Nebuchadnezzar, the king who actually took Jerusalem um, the following century. 
But I think it's a comp no one factor ever explains how an empire declines. You have you have a compounding of factors which together create situations which no one individual can actually hope to control. Well, Mark, I uh, I think I can probably sum it up for you um, pretty easily, and I think I I've, I've come up with the conclusion. Uh, I think the Assyrians just made the gods angry, and that's it. And the gods said, that's enough. <laughs> We're moving on. Yes. Um, I mean, if... Why not? I think... Well, why not? I have a question. Basically, sorry. Yeah, sure. You kept mentioning about the climate change that took place. Um, the collapse of the Bronze Age, or the late collapse of the Bronze Age, I think... Um, which led to the sea peoples taking over, and was that part of? Well, I think climate change was partly to do with that. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. It, it seems to be emerging now. Historians in the past didn't consider factors like climate change as an explanation, as an explanatory factor for some of the problems they were seeking to account for. Uh, a very good book that's come out by an American historian um, about Rome. It's a new account of the fall of the Roman Empire. And his principal thesis is that disease and climate change were the two principal factors that contributed towards the decline of the Roman Empire over a long period of time. Successive climate change, which led to famines, which also led to the emergence of new diseases, which kill, kill, killed off large numbers of people, progressively over time. So I think you're right, the Bronze Age collapse was, was certainly in part caused by climate change. I mean, the pressure of tribes moving into Greece, pushing out uh, the original inhabitants of um, uh, the Greek peninsula, who then moved into what we nowadays call Turkey, who then displaced and destroyed the Hittite Empire, moved south. Those that we call the Sea Peoples would seem to be genuinely people suffering from the same problems, but maybe from the Greek islands and uh, places. Uh, when when Ramesses III ended up fighting them and defeating them on the borders of Egypt, they had come looking for new lands to settle. And the explanation there is thought to be primarily climate change, bringing about very, very terrible living conditions, which if they were to survive, they had to move on to find pastures new. So I think this, this is something that probably, if I can just divert, have I got time just to diverge slightly? Yeah, go for it. I teach history at something called U3A. Uh, I'm 70. U3A is the University of Third Age. It is. It was set up, I think, in Europe. Um, it was for people who, who had retired, who wanted to keep their brains active, you know, anti-Alzheimer's. And uh, I taught history for 30 plus years. Um, I was first published in 89. Um, and... The unit I was teaching last year was the world in the 17th century. Now, I based, up, based that upon a book 
by an English historian called Jeffrey Palmer, I think teaches in the American University. Um, the 17th century was probably the worst year across the world for climate change and the consequences that afflicted the countries all over the world. It afflicted Europe, it afflicted Africa, it afflicted the Middle East, it afflicted the Turkish Empire. It is now thought that we can start dating the decline of the Turkish Empire to the consequences of the climatic problems brought about in the 17th century. And it went, goes into India, the only country that seems to have managed to, how would you say? Is this the Little Ice Age? Yes, yes. Okay. But the it's the it's the consequences across the world. Almost a whole century. I mean, most people in this country don't know that the English Civil War, 1642-1645, was fought in a period that was extremely wet and extremely cold, and that that were quite a few famines. Talk about the battles. I mean, films of you know, English battles, the Civil War battle, Naseby, always filmed with blue skies and whatever. No, not at all, not at all. Um, the only country in the world that seems to have managed to cope with the conditions was Japan. And that was because Japan was a highly centralised state in which the, the shogun gave the orders to the daimyo underneath him, and they did as they were told, feeding the people. But all over the rest of the world, the changes brought about by this climate change was incredible. China went through a hell of a period, millions upon millions dying of starvation. Do we hear about this? No, no, because we tend to still see history in terms of our own national histories. Whereas we ought to be looking really at a bigger global picture whenever we're looking at things. Yeah. So was the Assyrian empire bound to fail? Yes, bound to fail. I mean, it was fighting almost. The Assyrian army was out on campaign virtually every year or every other year for nearly three centuries. Hmm. No, no country can survive that sort of uh, that sort of commitment. I'll tell you what, Mark, that's no way to live. It's no it way isn't any way to live. <laughs> it isn't any way to live. War is not a good thing. No, it sucks. It sucks. It does sure. suck. Yeah. Well, now, well, gentlemen, I, I hope I've given you something that you were looking for. I'd be very disappointed if I haven't been able to give you something you were looking for. No, you've you've given you've given us uh, more, at least from my perspective, more than what I was what I was even expecting. Uh, it's been a fan. It's been a fabulous conversation. So much, uh, so much to think about, but so much to, I guess, uh, consume for our listeners. Um, there's so much there. And. Uh, your book, I wrote a, a review of the book. It came out, I guess, a number of days ago for the Epoch Times. But it is, I think, the perfect book to get you started as far as having an understanding of what the Assyrian Empire was all about. And like you said at the beginning of the show, your primary focus is on the kings and the, and the armies, the military. Um, but it gives you a very good grasp of what was going on for those several hundred years uh, with the Assyrians. Um, but yeah, no, I, I loved I loved it, Mark. It was such a pleasure having you. Yeah, I could I could ask you uh, I could ask you several more questions, but I know we're yeah we're. Oh yeah, no, I like I was looking at my notes from when I was reading the book and. L 
I was like, man, I, I, I could ask 20 questions just writing them down and still have, have more left over. Um, I, I did want to ask real quick, did ISIS destroy anything of importance regarding Assyria um, archaeology or anything like that? Yeah, they did. Um, they blew up. I think it was the they blew up large sections of the remains of the of the of the city of uh, Nimrud. I think it was Nimrud, not Ashur, but Nimrud, which was a United Nations, you know, heritage site. They were barbarians. Barbar they, they 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 certainly blew up uh, parts of the the great palace. Um, the palace without rivals in Nineveh, which was built by Sennacherib, they blew up uh, wall reliefs. Um, I have a book by um, one of your uh, historians who, who who worked extensively on uh, the archaeology of Nineveh, and he calls it the, the the final destruction of Nineveh, and it's to do with uh, what ISIS did about it. They were. It is it is it is hard to imagine the mentality of those people. It is, it truly is. But having said that, having said that, we say that about the Syrians. How can people have thought that way? But you say that now. How can people think that way in 2023? Well, I mean it it, it goes to the point with just war in general. Uh yep. Times change, people don't. Yeah. No, that's the trouble. That's the trouble. Yeah, that's the trouble. As you said earlier, technology improves. Uh, tactics don't change that much. Yeah. Strategy doesn't change that much. People don't change that much. Yeah, exactly. God forbid. It's yeah. You start got to stay on your toes. Well, Mark, thanks again for joining us. It was an an absolute pleasure. Yeah, well, I hope that is the case. And thank you for thank you for the conversation, Dustin. That was fantastic. I, you know, the Assyrians, always one of my favorite subjects. There's there's not that much material out there on on this very subject. So I'm glad we got to talk to somebody who uh, who knew his. Uh, well, I was going to say know his, you know what, but know his, his stuff. Yeah, can we say that? You know, come on, Shiz. shit. Who knows his shit? <laughs> well, it's the end of the episode, so it why is, not? Yeah, that's right. Might yeah, as well. we won't have turned anybody off yet. Yeah, so, um, you know, the, you know, there's the, the whole controversies about the Old Testament and the historical, you know, uh, information that's out there. Um, you know, I, I knew that the Old Testament had differences between the historical record and what it states. Um, but... Uh, Overall, I mean, it's it's at least somewhat going to be correct. But you know, like, but he but he mentioned like the battle, uh, the siege that he said didn't take place. There was the, uh, you know, I I know that the angel of the Lord's not going to come and wipe out a hundred. I guess he said what one hundred eighty three thousand. Yeah. So yeah, you're talking about completely wiping out an entire empire at that point. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's. That's the uh, that's the thing when when he asked like is that how it's viewed because uh, he was like I I assume that that's in America like that's how it's viewed I think that is the general accepted view is to take it on its literal basis and I think 
probably the reason the Bible, when it comes to the historical uh, aspect or the historical retellings, taking it literally and to be completely accurate without, you know, your typical uh, bias or propaganda or anything like that is... uh, is is a generally accepted view um, that the, you take it literally, and this is exactly uh, how it is. And and you, I think a lot of people they're never they're never pulling in other sources, other ancient sources to compare. Right? They're I don't they're think just, people take it literally. I, I think never... I think people do. Maybe, I, well, no, no, no. Maybe, I think some people do. I don't. Maybe the I don't. Catholics don't, but I think the evangelicals probably do. Well, I don't believe that God made you know Earth in six twenty-four hour days. I think that they were. If the, I think, if anything, it was more of maybe they were six days for God. Let's just say. Um, and but what what was a day? I, I don't think it was a twenty-four hour period. I think you're putting limitations on. On, well, uh, I think when you get to that, you're starting to take the the English uh, translation into its literal form uh, instead of reading it in in Hebrew or in Greek, where the definitions of those words are very different than a day, because in English, a day is a 24-hour period, but even... When we say a day and we think a 24-hour period, even in, you know, Genesis 1, when they say a day, that just means when the sun is out, you know, so it's not even 24 hours. So I I think, yeah, to, to that one, you're, I think those are two different literal uh, interpretations. I think when we're talking about what happened in battle, what happened with you know certain kings, I think the chronologically is the chronological. Um, I think chronologically, it lines up really well. Uh, but I also believe that, and this is this is from just studies of how things were written in in the Old Testament. Was you know. Some of it was propaganda. Some of it was uh, hyperbole about what was going on, and and like we like we ended up discussing to make you know the one party look better than the other party, and that that's pretty much across the board, um, nation to nation, empire to empire. Uh, that's just what they did. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I, I think it's fair to say that the Jews were no different. Well, in terms of like massacring people or uh No, in terms of uh recalling their history or writing their history. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you do read their history, they did wipe out like the people of Jericho no, and they wiped out freaking, uh, yeah. different There were a lot of cities that they just, you know, where yeah, they said brutal. God said wipe out everybody, including, you know. Uh, but like Mark said, every everything when it comes to war, it's not just war for war's sake. Religion and war go hand to hand. Gods and 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 war, it's gods and generals, right? That all goes hand in hand. You're not going into into battle without uh, being told by the gods to go fight or to ensure. Like you can read all throughout the Old Testament where the king would say, hey, 
Are we going to win this battle? I need to know. God Can God tell us whether we're going to win or whether we're going to lose, what we should do? So, yeah. No, I'm that no, that that is true. I mean, he, even even Alexander, uh he went to uh he even went to Egypt, I think to speak to Amon, Amon, mm-hmm. one of the Egyptian gods and and get advice and, you know, ask you going to help me out here or what, you know? And so Yeah. What was what's the um <sighs> What's the place in ancient Greece? Delphi. I knew it started with a D. I just couldn't. Yeah. That that was uh, the Temple of Apollo or something with Apollo. That was uh, the Oracle. I, I don't know if it's the Oracle of Apollo, but uh, yeah, Delphi was uh, that. That was if you saw the movie Three Hundred when uh, Leonidas went to go uh, get get advice, and that that chick was like floating in the air with this incense, and I think she was naked, wearing some sort of a uh, sheet of some sort. But yeah, but yeah, that that was the Oracle of uh, Apollo at Delphi. That was a wild scene. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it was a good movie. That was a good movie. I like that. Yeah, it's a good movie. It's it's very cool. Um, all right, man. Well, uh, I enjoyed this one. This was this was a lot of fun, um, and I hope our listeners got a lot out of it. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It was it was a good conversation, and uh, you know, ho- I hope he I hope he keeps writing. Always good to have a Brit with yes. us every once in a while. You know, my my belief is is if you want to have if you want to have a conversation that sounds intellectual, <laughs> just bring a Brit into it, and uh, there you go. Have have you know what? If you own a company and you want your company to look like they know what the hell they're talking about, or if you're a government agent, uh, or you know the like if uh, a president and you want your country to look intellectual. Hire a Brit as your spokesman. Get rid of Kareem Jean-Pierre and, and uh, bring in a Brit, I think. That would be a good idea. Yeah. I'll tell you, if I was president, I'd hire a Brit to be UN ambassador. Sure. Sure. Sure you would. Yeah, if we can only get you elected. All right. Well, that's all I got. Um, I had a joke, forgot it, and I will end it there. I'll see you later, man. Take care, bud.